0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Crosswinds Church, the Spencer campus. We're excited that you are here with us this morning. Uh, We are continuing our way through the book of Genesis. Uh, Crosswinds is a multi-site church, and so we have a location uh, up in... Yeah, I'm pointing the right way. That's nice. Uh, Up in Spirit Lake, as well as here in Spencer. Uh, I'm the campus pastor of our Spencer location. My name is Jordan. And uh, for the last year or so, we've been going through the book of Genesis. And as you can see uh, from your sermon notes, we are quickly coming to the end of this book of Genesis. And some of you are going to say, why so soon? And most of you are going to say, oh, good. We're almost done with this book Uh, as we've been working our way through genesis uh, we've seen over and over again this book is about god's faithfulness it's about how god loves his people how god is faithful to his people no matter how often or how many times or how severe they are when they turn their back against him and how god is faithful to keep his promises to his people no matter what Last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through the story of Joseph, the life of Joseph. Many of, us, many of us are probably familiar with Joseph's stories. And we've seen how God has used this man thousands of years ago in order to save the known world from a famine. And last week, specifically, we were in Genesis chapter 45. And we saw that Joseph reveals himself at long last to his brothers. And we were reminded that God is completely, utterly, 100% in control. That he is sovereign over any and every situation that we find ourselves in. And yet at the same time, humans, each and every one of us, responsible for our actions. This morning, we're going to be in chapter 45 and chapter 46. We're going to look at these two chapters this morning as they look at God's preservation of the people of Israel while they are in Egypt. And and I'm going to be completely honest with you up front. This is a very easy passage to understand. It is a very, very difficult passage to apply. It is a couple chapters that are all about God's promises to the people of Israel that have already been fulfilled thousands of years ago, and it can be difficult for us to take that and say, okay, how exactly do we apply this to our lives? Genesis 45, 46 tell us about this devastating famine spread throughout the entire known world, and the chosen family of God, the family of Abraham, of his descendants, Of Jacob and his children. All of these are in a vulnerable state. Not sure if they can survive from this famine. And it's in the midst of this vulnerability. It's in the midst of this hardship that God steps in. And he preserves his people. And he preserves this family. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And I think if there's one truth that I hope that we can grab this morning. It is simply this. In order for us to persevere in life storms, we must first recognize that God preserves us in life storms. If we have any hope of persevering in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty, when we are faced with struggle, if we have any hope of persevering, we must first recognize that God is the one who preserves us in the midst of those storms. Perhaps today you find yourself in a place where you are facing hardship, where you are facing strain, where you are facing struggle. But you need to know clearly the key to enduring in the midst of those times is that God is preserving you. God is at work in your life. And this is the key for us this morning. If we are going to persevere, we must first remember that we have been preserved by God in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to see that God preserves his people. He preserves Joseph and his family, and that is no less true for us today that God preserves his people. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to be starting in verse 16. So please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households. And come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And Joseph, and you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones. And for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best Of all the land of Egypt is yours. Last week, as we were working our way through the first fifteen verses of chapter forty five, we saw that Joseph charged his brothers with essentially the same thing. That they were to return back to Canaan. They were good to they were supposed to grab their father and bring him to Egypt. There were still five years of this famine still facing the entire known world, and the thought of running back and forth. Of going back and forth between Canaan and Egypt, any time that they needed food for refills just seemed completely unnecessary. This was a family that was nomads anyway. They would not have to sell houses. They would not have to find new jobs for them to move to Egypt. And so, the obvious solution for them is to simply pack their bags and move to Egypt, like so many other people were doing. This is logical. You move to where food is found. And people do that today as well. They move to where there are jobs, where there's food to be found. But there's one problem. There's one problem with this logical conclusion that we see here in Genesis chapter 45. What is it? Well, this is the fourth famine that we see in the book of Genesis. The fourth famine that is facing the people of Abraham's family. In Genesis 12, we see that Abraham is faced with a famine. And so Abraham decides to go to Egypt. Long story short, it doesn't go well. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 26, and we find ourselves in the third famine. We're going to skip the second one. This time, instead of Abraham, it is Isaac. Isaac leaves the promised land, and he's headed to Egypt, just like his dad did decades before. And then God intervenes. God says, stop. Don't go to Egypt, but stay here in Gerar. And even still, it does not go well. And yet here we find this pressure coming from the son, Joseph. This one who, as we've looked at Genesis, he seems like the most righteous character that we've encountered so far in this book. And so how can we reconcile this? What do we make of this passage? This man telling his family to leave the promised land. To leave the land that God had promised to them and to come to Egypt. Hold on to that question. We're going to come back to it here in a little bit. In any case, Pharaoh learns of the family's predicament and he echoes what Joseph has said. And he says, the brothers must bring Jacob back down to Egypt. He loves Joseph. Pharaoh loves Joseph. And of course, who wouldn't if you were Pharaoh? This is a man who made him look great. This is a man who made him look benevolent. The people loved Pharaoh because of Joseph. And so he's going to do whatever he can in order to take care of this family. And so he says, it's time for your family to move to Egypt to escape the famine, just like so many other families have done over the past two years. But here's the thing. The life of an immigrant in the midst of a famine is not at all luxurious. These people are outcasts in their society. They might survive the famine, but they will be extremely poor. They will likely sell themselves into slavery in order to just survive and to save their family. But notice what Pharaoh says to Joseph's brothers. He promises them the best of the land. They will not be typical poor immigrants in Egypt. They will benefit greatly because of Joseph. Pharaoh will bless them and they will be rich in Egypt. And it's all because of Joseph. And I don't want you to miss the significance here. Don't miss the significance. Last week, we we talked about how God had a plan to save save this family. That God was sovereign over all of the things that came their way. We saw that God had a plan for Joseph and his suffering. And we were reminded that that God wasn't just interested in saving Israel. He wanted to save the entire known world. But more than that, God wanted to save Israel and he wanted to bless them richly. If God was just interested in saving Israel, he could have just let them be immigrants. He wouldn't have had to make Joseph a slave and then make Joseph be in prison and then eventually have Joseph Joseph ascend to the throne. He could have just had them be immigrants. They would have survived. But God cares for this family. He's thought of everything and he wants to take care of them. And so God put Joseph through some of the most difficult experiences That one can imagine. All for the good of this family. Let's keep reading in verse 21. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. And gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver. And five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. And ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his fathers on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So Joseph prepares his brothers to go back to Canaan. And what he does first is he he gives them these gifts. At Pharaoh's request, he sends them back with these wagons to, to carry everything back to Egypt when they make the return journey. And of course, he he also gives them this gift of of a change of clothes for each and every one of them. It's just fascinating. It's fascinating because it shows us his character. Joseph has been wronged by his brothers. Joseph's brothers actually came to Egypt with a lavish gift for Joseph to show that they were sorry. And yet here, Joseph is sending them back to Canaan with gifts joseph's character here models god's character with us when we sin against god when we turn our backs on him when we refuse to listen to him we oftentimes think that we need to bring gifts to god in order to be forgiven but that's not the way it works god doesn't need our gifts in order to forgive us and instead of blessing him he always blesses us These gifts that that Joseph gives to his brothers are a sign of grace. But even more than that, notice the significance of what they are. It's a change of clothes. I think, in a way, this change of clothes is a reminder to the brothers, it's a reminder to everyone that they see that they are forgiven. The New Testament oftentimes talks about our forgiveness, our righteousness in God as a change of clothes. That we have now clothed ourselves with Christ. And in a way, that is what Joseph is doing here with his brothers. He is saying that they are forgiven, that he no longer sees them as guilty, but they have been forgiven and they have new clothes to prove it. Notice also he sends this extravagant gift for his father. And you might be wondering, what on earth is he doing here? Why would he send 10 donkeys loaded with the goods of Egypt to Canaan only for them to make a return journey shortly afterward? Is Joseph just one of those guys? He has a great heart, but he has no self-awareness whatsoever. No, Joseph is just extremely smart. He knows his brothers aren't the most trustworthy. They quote-unquote lost Joseph Several decades ago, they had gone to Egypt a, a few years before this, and they had quote unquote lost Simeon. Then they had quote unquote stolen things from the Egyptians. They were incestuous murderers, and that's only the stuff that their dad knew. If they were to return to Canaan and say, "Hey, hey, Dad, I, I, I know you're old. I know it's a risk to your life to go to Egypt, but you remember that guy Joseph that we told you was dead a couple." Years ago, well, surprise—he's alive, and uh, he, he's now king in Egypt. And, and you should just come and, and see him. He wants to see you. We don't have any proof. You're just gonna have to believe us. Just said, take us for uh, take us at our word, and you're gonna have to come see for yourself. There's no way that Joseph, excuse me, that Jacob would have uprooted his life. That he would have risked his life without solid proof that Joseph was actually alive. And so this gift is proof. And so the brothers set off for Canaan. Pick up in verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son is still alive. I will go to him and see him before I die. So the brothers return home. They tell dad the news. And of course, Jacob does not believe him. And my guess is he probably thinks his sons are playing a cruel trick on him. And he actually almost dies here because of what they have said. But then he hears the entire story. And what's more important, he sees the gifts and he realizes that this isn't just a bad joke. This is the news that he has hoped for his entire life. And so Jacob commits to head to Egypt, and he thinks that his reunion with Joseph would be in Sheol. If you look at Genesis chapter 37, but here we see that this reunion will take place in Egypt. At the end of the Lord of the Rings, after Frodo and Samwise, they destroy the ring. Evil is vanquished. They are recovering in Gondor, and Samwise sees Gandalf, and it's delight that that Gandalf is not dead. He says these words. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And I think that that's that same hope that Jacob has here. He has received his son back from the dead. He has lived a very bitter life. And a lot of it is because of his own actions. It's the consequences of his own actions. But now, near the end of his life, he thinks, he hopes, he pleads that this is the start of a new chapter. So you might be saying, okay, Jordan, you've thrown in a Lord of the Rings reference. You threw in a few neat facts about clothes. What's going on here? What's happening here? How how does this... uh, apply to my life? How is this relevant for me at all? 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is profitable in one way or another, and how on earth does this passage do that? I mentioned this is a, as a passage, it's easy to understand, but it's difficult to apply for us. I think that one of the ways for us to apply it, or to begin to see how this applies to our lives, is to first see how this parallels the story of the exodus. See, hundreds of years after this, the uh, descendants of Jacob and his family all leave Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Moses leads this new nation out of Egypt and into the promised land, the exact opposite of what is happening here. And there are a number of parallels. I just want to bring up three. First, notice there's a parallel in who represents the people of Israel. In Genesis chapter 45, Joseph is their representative. This is a man who lives and works in Pharaoh's court, and he intercedes for his family before Pharaoh and on their behalf. In the story of the Exodus, Moses is the representative. He is the one who was raised in Pharaoh's courts, and he intercedes for Israel on behalf of the people of Israel. Excuse me, he he intercedes before Pharaoh on behalf of the people of Israel. So there's this similarity here between representatives. Second similarity or parallel is this issue of wealth. Genesis chapter 45, Pharaoh promises Jacob's children the best of the land. He says that they should have no concern for their goods because they will be blessed when they come to Egypt. They will acquire great wealth at the expense of the Egyptians. If you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, as they are leaving Egypt, the Israelites are told to plunder their Egyptian neighbors and masters, and they walk out of Egypt with a great amount of wealth at the hands of the Egyptians. It's another parallel here. Third parallel, there is a disaster that spurs this movement. Genesis 45, it is a famine that leads them into the land of Egypt. In Exodus, there are plagues that lead them out of Egypt. There are a number of similarities, but the key is to see the difference between these two passages. In Genesis 45, there are 70 people who make the journey into Egypt And in the story of the Exodus, a multitude, maybe possibly even numbering in the millions, leaves Egypt. What is Genesis trying to teach us? It is trying to remember or remind us that God is completely 100% faithful to his promises. God had promised to Abraham that he would be a great nation, and in the midst of famine, and in the midst of hardship, in the midst of circumstances that we could not fathom how God would come through, God preserves his people and he preserves his promise for them. God keeps his promises. That's what Genesis 45 is telling us. It's telling us how God plans to save this family, how God plans to preserve this family. And then we turn to Genesis 46 and we see Jacob on his way to egypt pick up in verse one so israel took his journey with all that he had and came to beersheba and offered sacrifices to the god of his father isaac and god spoke to israel in visions of of the night and said jacob jacob and he said here i am then he said i am god the god of your father Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. Jacob has spent most of his life living in Hebron, and on his way south to Egypt, he stops at Beersheba. And that's got some special significance for us. This is where Jacob grew up. Jacob grew up in Beersheba. This is where his family was from. And he had left suddenly decades before because his brother, his brother plotted to kill him. And we have no idea if he ever returns. But Jacob is making this journey more than just for memory's sake. It's more than just to show his kids where he went to school. It's more than just to show his kids where he used to play and where he grew up. He came to Beersheba because that is the place where his dad and his grandfather worshipped God. And as he's here on the verge of leaving the promised land, he takes the time to worship God at the family's altar. Remember, we asked earlier this morning about why is it okay for him to leave during this famine, but it wasn't okay for Abraham, and it wasn't okay for Isaac. The answer is right here. God reveals that it is okay, and God assures him with four promises. Notice briefly these four promises in God's speech. First, he promises that Jacob will be a great nation. This is the same promise that God has made to Abraham, even as he's about to leave the promised land and whether he knows it or not, his family won't return for another 450 years. God assures him that he will keep his promise. He has no need to fear an uncertain future, that the famine will have no effect on the family because God will make this family a great nation. That's our first promise. Second promise is this. He promises that I will go down with you. God is reminding Jacob that he is not bound to the promised land. He is not bound by geographical boundaries, but he is God everywhere. He is with Jacob in Mesopotamia. He is with Jacob and his family in Egypt. I will go down with you. Third thing is this. He says, I will bring you up. Now, this one's more for his offspring than it is for Jacob. As we see in the final promise, God says that Jacob will die in Egypt, but for his children and his grandchildren and great grandchildren. Remember, this is being written during the time of the Exodus. This is being written by Moses to the people who are living in the wilderness. They've just left behind Egypt and they're not yet in the promised land. And they're wondering if they ever will enter into the promised land. And this promise is for them. I will bring you up. God is not done with his people. God is not done with the people of Israel after the passing of the patriarchs. God's promises will endure the test of time. I will bring you up. And the fourth one is this. Joseph's hands will close your eyes. Joseph's hands will close your eyes. There's no need to fear the future. There's no need to fear this famine because he will pass in peace in the arms of his favorite son. He may have had a life of hardship, but he will be reunited with, Jacob, with Joseph once more. And so the next morning he sets off for Egypt. And that's what we see in, uh, in verse 5. Then Jacob set out for from Beersheba the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him they also took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan they came into Egypt Jacob and all of his offspring with him his sons and his sons' sons with him his daughters and his sons' daughters all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt He arrived safely In Egypt, God has promised that he would arrive safely and God keeps his promise as we would expect and you would expect the rest of the story to tell of a great reunion between Joseph and Jacob. That seems like what it's it's building up to, right? If you were going to be writing a novel and you wanted to have the kicker, this final restoration of father and son after decades apart, you would put it right here starting in verse eight. What you wouldn't do is put a genealogy, That's just not the thing that you would do. It's bad writing if you're looking at this from a a Hollywood standpoint or or trying to write a, a good novel that will sell. So why on earth is there a family tree listed right here after this family has made it into Egypt? The key is to look at verses 26 and verses 27. Let's go ahead and look at these two verses. The very end of this genealogy, it says this. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And then notice this. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. What is this genealogy doing here? What, what's its purpose? What's the significance of the number 70? Well, a couple of things. First of all, this genealogy reminds us that God has kept his promise that all of Israel has entered into Egypt. It's not like some stayed and some left. All of them went into Egypt. Second, it reminds us that God preserves his people in the midst of Hardship. God has promised that He will walk with His people in His famine, and that is exactly what He's doing here, and that's what this genealogy is reminding us. As we open this morning in the midst of a famine, in the midst of hard times, as we try to persevere, God first preserves His family, and that's what we see here. But third, and more importantly, notice this number 70. What's the significance of 70? Well, if you go back to Genesis 10, Genesis 11, uh, we were there probably a, a year, maybe like five years ago as we were working our way through Genesis, not that long ago, but as we, as we were in Genesis 10 and 11, it was right after the flood and Noah's descendants are spreading throughout the entire world in this passage that's referred to as the table of nations, What Genesis is saying in these two chapters is that every single group of people that lives on the face of the planet has their descendants from Noah. We can all trace our lineage back to Noah. Now, how many nations do you think are listed there? Seventy. The offspring of Jacob here in Genesis chapter 46 run parallel to the nations that are descended from Noah in chapters 10 and 11. Okay, cool. That's a, that's a neat piece of Bible trivia. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? Well, first, it again emphasizes this totality of Israel that has entered into Egypt. But more important than that, it connects this family back to the promise of God. That God has promised that he will save humanity from sin. Even as he saved a remnant in the flood, that God will save this Uh, this group of people, and through this people, humanity will be saved from sin because God is faithful to his promises, and God is faithful to his people. Again, these verses are, are easy to understand. These verses are a little more difficult to see the purpose or why Moses is including these things but they're very difficult for us to apply. How do we take passages that are verses that are about the promises of Israel becoming a great nation? How do we apply those to us today? How do we how do we do that? How does this touch my life in a very visceral way that actually matters that doesn't just give me Bible trivia that I can never use ever in my life? Remember, God, it, God's commitment is, is about this uh, people of Israel. He, he's committed to preserve them even as they persevere. And so I think there are four ways that this applies to us today. And that's what we're going to close with this morning. First, God will preserve his church. God will preserve his church. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was on a retreat with his disciples. As they were away from the crowds, Jesus asked them a question. He said, who do you think that I am? Without a doubt, it's the most important question that Jesus has ever asked his disciples. Who do you think that I am? I picture all of the disciples are sitting there. They're mumbling to each other. None of them really has the courage to to say what they're all thinking. And then finally, Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ. You're not a prophet. You're not Elijah, you're not some charismatic rabbi, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And Jesus answers him with these words, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Don't miss the forest for the trees. What is this passage saying? It is promising us, it is guaranteeing us that Jesus will build his church. Nothing will ever overcome his church. Nothing will ever conquer his church. Nothing will ever destroy his church. Nothing will ever be victorious over his church. There is no legislation from Congress that will ever nullify the promise of God. There is no Supreme Court that can negate Jesus's promise here. There is no executive order that will be able to overcome what Jesus has promised here. There is no increase of radical Islam that will stop Jesus's promise. There is no secularization of the United States that will stop Jesus's promise right here. That he will build his church. God will preserve his church. And if you are discouraged about the state of our nation, if you are worried about your children or about your grandchildren or about the future, rest assured in this promise that God will preserve his church. Second promise for us today, God will preserve you. If you are a Christian, God will preserve you. This doesn't mean that he's going to make your life easy. A quick glance at the lives of the apostles makes that very clear. But no matter what may come your way, God will not abandon you. He will keep you. He will strengthen you. He will give you the courage to endure no matter what. His commitment to you is unwavering and he will see you through until the end. Without a doubt, one of the most powerful passages in the entire bible is hebrews chapter 11 hebrews 11 is oftentimes known as the hall of faith it tells us of these countless old testament figures who placed their faith in god and they hoped in god's promises but they never saw god's promises fully revealed in their lives every single one of them lived in the world and yet the world was not their Home. They fell out of place in the world because of their commitment to God. Hebrews chapter 11 says this. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Perhaps you find yourself in a place where you are exactly like those that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. You live your life by faith. You've tried to trust in God and all that you've done, but you still have not received what he has promised to you. God's word promises an abundant life for us, and yet you lose your job. God has promised that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and yet your spouse is on their way out the door. You have tried your hardest to raise your kids to follow God, and yet now they want nothing to do with the church. And on and on and on we could go. Hebrews continues in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you feel as if God has not kept his promises to you, Hebrews 12 reminds you, look to Jesus. Set your gaze upon him, because in Jesus we see the promises of God are ultimately kept that God will be faithful to preserve his people, that he will be faithful to preserve you no matter what you are facing. God will preserve you. Third promise for us out of this passage is this. We are being preserved for something better. We are being preserved for something better. Genesis 45, Genesis 46 tell us that Pharaoh pulls out all the stops for the people of Israel. They receive far better than they deserve because of Joseph's faithfulness. And for us... We, ref- we receive infinitely better than we deserve because of Jesus's faithfulness. No matter what hardships, no matter what disappointments are facing you, you are being preserved for something better, even if you aren't struggling. You find yourself at a place where, where you have a, a great life, your marriage is going well, your kids love God, you have enough money, your, ha- your family is happy and healthy. Even in that situation god is preserving you for something infinitely better romans chapter 8 declares this for i consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us we ourselves we have the first fruit of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope who hopes with what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Just as Pharaoh gave the people of Israel the best of the land, God will one day give us infinitely more than we deserve mentioned sam wise from lord of the rings when he says is everything sad going to come untrue and for the christian that is true god will rid the world of pain he'll rid it of hurt he'll rid it of of death c.s lewis once famously said this some mortals say of temporal suffering no future bliss can make up for it not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even the agony into a glory No matter what you face, no matter what hardship or suffering you face, God will turn it into a glory before the throne of him who died for us. God has something infinitely better for us. Our fourth promise is this, God's kingdom will prevail. God's kingdom will prevail no matter what comes, no matter what happens to us or to United States, we know the end of the story. We know that God is victorious. We know that God will establish his kingdom. That's what the entirety of the book of Revelation is ultimately about. It is reminding us verse after verse after verse that God is victorious and that God will establish his kingdom. No matter how good your life is, no matter how bad your life may be, no matter how deep you feel like you are in pain or how despairing you are right now, God will preserve his people. And if you find yourself in a place where you are in the midst of storms right now, remember this, in order to, per- to persevere in life's storms, we must first recognize that God preserves us in life's storms. Hope ultimately is found in the kingdom of God I have to say, what a, what a great, wonderful, marvelous hope that we have. The kingdom of God is a source of hope. It is a source of joy. It is a source of confidence. It is a source of peace for us. And that is truly good news. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you are committed to preserving your people. When we feel like we are just going through the motions. When we feel tempted to turn our backs on you. To stop following you. The thought that you preserve us. And that gives us the strength to persevere. Is encouraging. And so Lord I pray that you would help us to cling to that promise. Cling to that truth today. The rest of this week. Every day of our lives God. That you preserve us. Even as you preserve the people of Israel in the time of Joseph. God, you're so good. You give us infinitely more than we deserve. And we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.